It's Tuesday, January 21st. Welcome to Skim This. We're breaking down the most complex stories of the day and giving you the context on why they matter. The world's biggest movers and shakers are packing up their skis and heading to the Swiss Alps. We'll explain what Davos is and why it's become such a popular destination. Then, what does a Senate impeachment trial look like anyway? Let's just say if you were planning a watch party, you're gonna need a lot of popcorn. And finally, why the New York Times' 2020 endorsement is making headlines. We're here to make your evening smarter. Let's skim this. Today's episode is brought to you by Uber. The first rule of Davos is, don't talk about Davos. If you need to ask why world leaders and billionaire CEOs are gathering in the Swiss Alps this week, chances are you're not on the guest list. But since we won't be raising our pinkies alongside global elites either, we've got time to guide you through what the meeting's all about. So let's gas up the chopper and go for a tour. Ah, the picturesque town of Davos. It's a popular ski resort that, since the 70s, has played host to a yearly summit called the World Economic Forum. People just call the conference Davos. It runs for four days and kicked off this morning. With snipers on chalet roofs and soldiers in winter camouflage, the whole scene can kind of look like a Bond villain's lair. To get on the 3,000-person guest list, you either have to pay more than half a million dollars to join the World Economic Forum, or you get a special invite from the organizers. And those lucky invites are usually more Bono than average Joe. Though, if you're lucky enough to make the cut, you might want to up your credit limit. Private jets or helicopters are the preferred way into town. And just for kicks, we looked at last-minute hotel reservations, and a budget room will put you back almost two grand a night. So with this price tag, what's the point? The Davos mantra is about bringing together decision-makers to help, quote, improve the state of the world. Recent summits tried tackling climate change, income inequality, and unemployment. Sounds pretty important. And Davos fans argue that getting everyone in the same ski town to hash things out is just a good use of time. So chalk one up for billionaire slumber parties. But it's safe to say not everyone agrees Davos is living up to its mission. Davos can make for an easy punchline even among its guests, who boast about cutting emissions after flying in on private jets. JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon has called Davos a place where billionaires tell millionaires what the middle class feels. And even late-night host Stephen Colbert has gotten in on the fun. Davos is fancy. I mean, this is where the hoity go to get their toity on. Others have less comedic concerns. Last year, a Time Magazine editor called Davos a family reunion for the people who broke the modern world. Meaning, at Davos, the same people who got us into the Great Recession a decade ago are now the ones giving economic advice. Or the business leaders raging against wage inequality on stage are the same ones keeping wages low back at the office. And surprise, surprise, Davos also struggles with diversity. Last year's guest list was only 22% female, and that number's barely budged despite years of criticism. In other words, this global summit doesn't exactly look like the world it says it represents. So with everyone dressed up in their designer ski wear, what's actually getting done? Or supposedly getting done? This year's Davos theme was sustainability. And for the second consecutive year, climate activist Greta Thunberg, who actually pronounces her name like... My name is Greta Thunberg. ...scored an invite. But she wasn't there to make friends and lectured elites on continuing to drag their feet on climate action. Our house 
is still on fire. Your inaction is fueling the flames by the hour. Some at Davos are listening. The World Economic Forum launched its One Trillion Trees initiative, pledging to plant a trillion trees by 2030 to capture carbon emissions. But in his keynote speech, President Trump didn't call out Greta specifically, but took a swipe at climate activists. To embrace the possibilities of tomorrow, we must reject the perennial prophets of doom and their predictions of the apocalypse. So what's the scam? After facing criticism for being out of touch with global concerns, organizers promise they're making changes. No joke, in recent years, they've even recommended wealthy guests carpool on each other's private jets. Organizers also say they're succeeding in promoting stakeholder capitalism, which involves getting companies to focus on people, not just profits. So if you've been hearing companies make new climate or social responsibility pledges this week, the timing may not be a coincidence. But experts caution not to read too much into these promises, because once they get back to boardrooms and investors, their focus shifts back to the bottom line. So if you're waiting for big changes to the global economy to come out of Davos, maybe don't hold your breath. Another issue world leaders may be whispering about on the slopes of Davos is what to do about the outbreak of coronavirus. That's the virus that first started infecting people in the Chinese city of Wuhan last month. Today, the CDC announced the first coronavirus infection in the U.S., and the government is setting up new health checks at airports to stop the spread. The World Health Organization is holding a big emergency meeting on the coronavirus outbreak tomorrow, so we'll have more on that then. Speaking of urgent meetings, members of the Senate had a heated debate today over the rules of President Trump's impeachment trial. More on that after the break. Next time you need a ride, try Uber. They're committed to safety. All drivers are background checked and rescreened every year. Riders and drivers have access to an emergency button in the app that connects them to 911. Plus, Uber introduced a brand new feature called Ride Check. Using GPS, Ride Check can detect if a trip goes off course and checks in to provide support. Ride Check is just one of the ways Uber is committed to safety. Learn more at uber.com/safety. That's uber.com/safety. Everyone loves a good courtroom drama. Order. Object. Move to strike. Bailiff, get rid of him. Case dismissed. And now, we've got a pretty intense legal drama playing out in the U.S. Senate. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment, impeachment against Donald John Trump, President of the United States? Today, the Senate got together to decide on the rules of a trial the outcome of which will determine whether or not President Trump will be removed from office. Remember, the House of Representatives voted to impeach Trump last month on two counts, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Now it's up to the Senate to acquit or convict him. Like any normal courtroom, the Senate trial has a judge and lawyers and a jury, and maybe witnesses. But when it comes to bringing the courtroom to the Capitol building, those roles are a little different from what you might see on Law & Order. So let's dive into the who's who in this trial on Capitol Hill, starting with the guy with the gavel, the judge, or in this case, not just any judge, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts. He was sworn into his new side gig last week. You will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and the laws, so help you God. I do. Today, Roberts was working overtime. 
First, he spent the morning hearing two oral arguments with the rest of the Supreme Court. Then, he ran across the street and brought a different court to order. The Senate will convene as a court of impeachment. The Constitution only says that the Chief Justice shall preside over an impeachment trial. So Roberts is basically just going to act like a normal judge here. He'll watch the proceedings, he can ask questions, he will maintain order. But unlike a normal judge, he doesn't control any of the rules in his courtroom. That's up to the jury, which in this case is made up of all 100 U.S. senators. They decide on the rules of the game. So yeah, not the way your typical courtroom is run. But while the trial is going on, the senators don't get to talk at all. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment. So pretty serious. The senators can't even use their phones while acting as jury, so no scrolling through Twitter or sending selfies to pass the time. They have to sit there and listen. But they still have to decide on the rules of the trial. The head juror, a.k.a. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, presented them earlier today. For the further information of all senators, I'm about to send a resolution to the desk providing for an outline of the next steps in these proceedings. The big rules up for consideration are about how the lawyers will get to make their case. So how will that work? On the prosecution side, we've got seven members of the House of Representatives, a.k.a. the House Managers. They'll explain why they voted to impeach the president last month and argue why the Senate should vote to convict him. On the defense side, we've got Trump's legal team. That includes the White House's top lawyers, one of Trump's personal lawyers, and some big deal private practice lawyers. Like Ken Starr, the lawyer who led the case for President Clinton's impeachment back in the 90s. Each side will get 24 hours of the court's time to make their case. Sounds like a long time, but those 24 hours will be split up over just three days for each side, meaning they'll need to be prepared for a lot of long work days and nights. Also unlike a normal courtroom, after oral arguments, the jurors slash senators get to grill the lawyers. But like we said, senators don't actually get to talk. So if they want to ask something, they have to write it down and pass it to the judge. Chief Justice Roberts will then read the question out loud. And another thing that's different from a normal courtroom, in this case, the jury gets to decide if and how it hears from witnesses. McConnell said the Senate will consider adding witnesses after it hears the arguments and questions from both sides. So they'll talk about it next week. But the top Democrat in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, is pushing back. I send an amendment to the desk to subpoena certain documents and records from the White House, and I ask that it be read. The Senate's still debating that topic as we record this episode. We're expecting a vote on all of the rules later tonight. And then the trial officially, officially, officially kicks off tomorrow. So stay tuned. Just two weeks before the Iowa caucuses, on Sunday night, the New York Times endorsed not one, but two candidates for the 2020 Democratic primary nomination. Senators Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts and Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. Normally, the conversations about who the New York Times ends up endorsing and how they choose that candidate happen behind closed doors and off the record. This year, the editorial board played by completely different rules. For the first time, the process was actually televised on The Weekly. That's the paper's new TV series that airs on Sunday nights. And if you wonder just who at The Times actually does the endorsing, Sunday's episode gave the answer. The editorial board is in the opinion department. We are completely separate from the Times newsroom. 
That's right, the editorial board that decides who the paper is going to endorse is made up of opinion journalists. In other words, they don't speak for the newsroom or the paper as a whole. And now, the reactions to this double endorsement are stirring up a lot of drama. People are upset for a number of reasons. Critics are saying that endorsing two candidates isn't helpful, because it's not like when you show up to vote at the polls on election day, you get to pick your favorite two. Others are upset because the episode basically turned the whole process into a reality TV show or a sports draft pick. Some are even going as far as saying that the whole idea of a major newspaper endorsing a candidate should just be over and done with, that it hurts a paper's journalistic integrity rather than helping its readers, and that in the end, newspaper endorsements don't really matter. Remember, over half of the nation's top newspapers endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016. Only two endorsed Donald Trump. And well, you know the story. For more on all things about the road to 2020, check out the skim.com slash 2020. And that's all for Skim This. Thanks again for listening and be sure to hit subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you want to add the Skim to your morning routine, sign up for our free newsletter, The Daily Skim, right on our website at theskim.com. It's everything you need to know to start your day right in your inbox.